Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us, and the humans behind the positions in our public conversations. Each episode, I speak to someone involved in public conversations in some way. Journalists, politicians, comics, poets, archbishops. And I ask them about what they hold sacred and what they've learned about engaging across difference. As usual, if you can spare a few seconds to rate the podcast, share an episode with a friend, or write a little review, it really brightens my day. In this episode, which we recorded remotely during the COVID-19 lockdown, I spoke to Jay Hume. Jay is a poet, educator and public speaker, and he's transgender. We spoke about why poems give us permission to really feel things, why he thinks debates about trans issues are currently so fraught, and how he found faith after swearing at God in a cathedral. I hope you enjoy listening. Jay, I'm going to kick off. Uh, I always, it, this format just really throws people in the deep end, but it's partly my allergy to small talk and partly because I'm a nerd. So I'm going to ask you straight off about your sacred value. And you have had a bit of warning, which is great. And really, you can fill the space of that word however you like. But thinking about your deep principles, the things that you try and live by, even if you sometimes fail, is a good place to start. So I, I, I have had a long time to think about this. And my first immediate idea was just be kind to each other. And I feel like that's very basic and very cheesy, but I think it's important. And I think it's also entwined with something that I hold very sacred personally, more for myself than for sort of the wider community, is a sense of peace within oneself. I think that's extremely important. And and now that I have found it, I do not know how I would be able to live without it. Wow. I really want to hear more about that journey, but I just want to affirm the kindness point in you. We're recording in the middle of the coronavirus lockdown. We may hopefully be out of it by the time this airs. But one of the things that I'm loving about this time is suddenly things that seemed a bit kitsch or trite or lightweight, like kindness in our public conversation, suddenly are being seen for the hefty things that they are, I think, the, the deep and serious things they are. That you landed on peace within yourself. Maybe I'll rewind back to your childhood and we'll, we'll, we'll trace that journey through. I asked people to give me a picture of the ideas that were in the air when they were growing up. And you can reveal as much or as little as you, as you like through that. But particularly if there was anything philosophical or political or religious that you think really formed the young Jay. Um, I think I'm, I'm, very, I'm very strange in that if anyone here has watched Absolutely Fabulous, you'll know that there's this sort of partying mother figure and then the child is this very straight-laced child and I was very much that child to my parents it was the running joke so I was brought up my mum and dad are biker hippies which is not something you think is a combination but it is I guess what happens when bikers get old is they either continue to be bikers or become hippies and they made that transition when I was sort of a teenager Whereas I've always been, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't enjoy parties, I don't do dancing, glitters off the table, discos, no, I carry earplugs attached to my keys at all times in case things are just a little bit too loud, you know, like... My favourite material for clothing is tweed. I enjoy wearing suits at all times. My father does not own a suit, you know, and it was this very strange... um thing. I always felt this sort of affinity for things that I wasn't really brought up with. And it was very, very strange. So my childhood was very weird in that I was brought up standard working class. My dad's an electrician. My mum worked um, in various warehouses. One of them was a book distribution warehouse, which got me into literature because she brought home free kids books. And I read 
all of them all at once. And and what happened was um, it was before schools got really angry about kids going on holiday during term time. And my parents being bikers were really into the MotoGP, which is sort of the F1 for motorbike racing. And they wanted me to go to take us all to Italy and see the MotoGP because the best racer at the time was Valentino Rossi. He was Italian. If you saw him at his home circuit, it was like the thing. So to get me out of school, they said they were taking me on a cultural trip around Italy and took me to watch some people race motorbikes. And the first year they did that, I came back and I snitched on them and said that we hadn't seen anything cultural and that we'd just watch motorbikes. And so the years after that, they had to take me to heritage sites, otherwise I'd drop them in it. And so as this kid, we'd go to places... You know, I was so lucky. I got saw the Lean Tarapisa, the Statue of David. We did a little bit of Pompeii. Saw lots of Renaissance religious art. We saw Florence. We saw Naples. It was amazing. And I got to see a lot of culture that I wouldn't have been exposed to because I was a little snitch, <laughs> which I think is really nice. Um, but yeah, a combination of just getting very lucky and that my mum got free books at work and me just refusing to lie, me snitching on them meant that I got this really rich cultural education that I most people in my you know in that sort of livelihood wouldn't have got and when did poetry first pop up in your life do you have a first poetic memory I have always wanted to be a poet like the first piece of poetry we have a record of me writing I was four I wrote it about some sheep and a tractor it was very bad I will not recite it for you but I, I think I've always wanted to be a poet. And I think it's partially because one of the first sort of pieces of literature we show kids is poetry. We don't say it is. It's nursery rhymes. It's picture books. It's whatever. But within that is a huge amount of poetry. And so that's the first piece of literature anyone falls in love with. And I think I, I held to that quite tightly. And I, th I think the second part of that was that, again, my mum worked at this book warehouse and the books she got for free were the ones that nobody wanted. And nobody wants poetry. <laughs> like, it was a bad life choice for me to make going in to be a poet. But so I got all these free poetry books and I just I was obsessed with the idea that you can write something and you can convey the feeling not just through the writing, but through these techniques that I didn't know or understand, but I knew they were there and I knew they were really important. And I've just always had this sort of affinity for it. I always say that you have to be able to taste a poem. And that's basically just me getting over the fact that I don't actually know what half of the techniques are called, but I know them when I, when I hear them, when I feel them, when I read them. That's so interesting. I have a three and a five-year-old and I have never thought of all the repetitive rhyming literature uh, books that I'm reading them as poetry but now I'm like each peach pear plum I spy tom thumb you know the snail and the whale I'm just literally running through the bookshelf of the things that they loved as babies and they all have meter and they all have rhyme and they all have really powerful sense of picture language thank you you have changed how I see children's literature well one of my favorite facts ever and I know a lot of weird random facts but one of my favorite facts of all time is the fact that the oldest piece of literature that we have record of is poetry and it's not just a piece of poetry it's a piece of very accomplished poetry which proves that poetry is older than writing poetry is older than the written word itself poetry is the first form of literature that we came up with for the reasons that it speaks to something deeper within us it speaks to a feeling and because of course the rhyme scheme and the meter make it easy to remember and so before humans wrote before humans built societies, before humans did any of the things that we think sets us apart from the animal kingdom, we wrote poetry and we read poetry and we recited poetry to each other 
forever since the dawn of time. And to me, I think that means that poetry connects within us on a deeper level because it speaks to us on a level that is beyond human. It is almost animalistic. And I think if we want to push that, perhaps it is poetry itself that separates us from the animal kingdom because it is is that that first thing. I would love to hear what you think about the role of poetry in our public conversations. And I am a poetry lover, although I have very kind of basic poetry tastes in that I like Eliot and I like Auden and I like Dunn and I like Gerald Manley Hopkins and you know uh, and I have you know I like but I've always thought if I if I had reams of time I'd spend it reading less well-known poets and and really immersing myself in that but I don't think that's gonna happen anytime soon. I'll message you a quarantine list. Thank you I would love that but I think that it's interesting to me how poetry is positioning itself in this moment because when we think about public conversations poetry unless we think maybe of of the big kind of that national anthem or the big songs or something that's part of our common life usually when a poet gets made poet laureate which is perhaps the only kind of official public poetic role there's a lot of chatter about their work declining or how difficult it is to write poetry for big state occasions but suddenly the newspapers are full of poems and i certainly can only really concentrate on poems or Golden Age detective fiction. That's about all I can read. What is it about poetry, perhaps in times of crisis or in times of need, that draws us to it? Um, I think, as, I, as I've said before, poetry speaks something deeper within us. But the other power of poetry is that it can encapsulate every emotion in such a small amount of, of space. You know, you have humorous poems, you have sad poems, you have, you have poems that are really dark, poems that are really light. Poems can encapsulate the whole range of human emotion. And poems have always been used in times of political turmoil and and for politics. Poems, particularly in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, they were an inherently political thing. Poems were always used to criticise the government, to criticise members of parliament, the state, royalty. Poems had a huge part to play in things like the French Revolution, the Chartist movement, um, everything that we've ever really done has had poems in it because, of course, back then poems were your political chants, poems were your... They were the thing because of the fact that when you have, hear a poem, because of the meter, because of the rhyme, because of all these techniques that people love to over-focus on and over-complicate and, and tear into, which I don't think they should. I think you should just, you know, unless you're actually doing a degree in literature, you should just leave it alone. All of those techniques make it memorable to us. And those techniques exist not to be clever, but to speak to us. And I feel like a lot of people lose that and they're like, oh, look at the meter, look at the metonymy, look at this, look at that. When that makes actually, it seem elitist, right? When that's yeah. not what that's there for. That's why people don't like poetry, because it's... I always describe a poem as a very carefully woven web. If you look at a spider web, you don't know where any of the threads are. And if you try and take a spider web apart to trace each of those threads, you will never be able to get that spider web back. What you've done is you've destroyed it. When you get a poem, and it's fine to look through a poem but and look deep into it, but if you haven't experience the poem if you haven't listened to it felt it thought it had a moment with that poem in which you accept it as a whole then by taking it apart you lose so much of what it was trying to do once you rip it apart and find the meter you find the rhyme scheme you find oh he's done this and that and the other she's done that and the thing and that you lose the whole that has been created poets make poems using all of those techniques, not to use those techniques, but to have the effect of those techniques. And when you pull it apart, what you're basically doing 
is you're destroying the backbone of the poem. The words are still there, but you've gone so far into the complexities that you lose the meaning and you lose the feeling. And I think it's it's a big problem with the way we deal with poetry today. And to go back to why it's so important politically, it's because it's those techniques, it's those techniques that speak to someone in such a condensed form. We speak so much now. We're online so much. So much is said. There's so much information. I read the news eight, nine, ten times a day. I love the news. You know, we're always reading things. Every couple of hours, we absorb more information than people did in whole lifetimes. And yet we don't connect with it. And by saying so much in so small amount of space, poems both counteract that and connect with us in a wholly different way. And I think in times of crisis, people have always turned to poetry because of that. Mm. They're acting a bit like a palate cleanser for me at the moment. It does feel like it's a, it's a really different part of my brain a different part of my heart. I wonder, I like the work of Ian McGilchrist who talks about the different brain hemispheres of, and what they do and the, the kind of orderly left brain, which maybe we go into in that kind of analysis critique mode is quite different from the right brain, which has these strengths in art and religion and music and these things. And actually mm. we need to kind of let ourselves stay in the right brain maybe to, to feel the power of poetry. And, so. and I think poems give us permission to feel in a way that other art doesn't because poem poets are so notoriously messed up and messy and chaotic and absolute nightmares to live with because poetry gives us permission to feel deeply in ways that we don't feel otherwise you know it's okay to cry at a poem it's a bit weird to cry at a newspaper article um and i feel like as a piece of art poetry poetry in society has been given permission to let us have emotions you know paintings and things it's weird to to stare at a painting and want to cry it's not we should all want to cry at paintings art's beautiful but people see it as kind of strange to connect with it on that level whereas poetry because or almost because of the stereotype of the sad teenager writing poetry the the emotions the fact that it's so connected with love and loss gives us permission to feel emotions more strongly and in ways that we normally aren't allowed to and i think that's a secret power of poetry that people see as kind of like a cheesy thing. Oh yeah, you're feeling sad about poems. I'm like, cry at poems. We all need to cry at poems. Have an emotion. Yeah. Poetry gives us permission to feel, I think is a lovely line. So we're going to go back and not just because you said the stereotype of the sad teenager writing poetry, although that's probably a part of many of our teenage experiences, <laughs> but I'm going to ask you about when you first, if you can remember, realised that you were trans and I'm going to caveat with in fact, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to sort of premise it with being really honest that I'm really nervous about talking about this. And I think that's indicative, actually, of probably why in our public conversations we need to talk about it. And we need to talk about, you see, even as I begin, I worry about tripping over my words <laughs> and saying the wrong thing. I've, 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 we can I, I've, edit it, it's fine. Yeah, if, thank we, you. I've been spending wrong. too much time on Medium trying to understand, you know, the, 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 so many of personal experience, but also the theory, which feels frankly like you need a kind of gender theory degree to understand the different terms used. And that's, I think, what's tripping me up, this sense in which there are lots of different terms, there are lots of different ways to be unkind and sometimes on purpose. And I really hope I wouldn't do it on purpose, but sometimes accidentally. And I've listened to some of your beautiful poems. And so I know that's happened to you and that that's wounded you. All of which is to caveat it with, if I say something stupid, um, please be patient with me and and help me understand why. But we hopefully we won't need to because we're not going to go into theory. I just want to hear your story. So I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to hear when that first became 
part of your lived experience and what that journey was like really in those early years? I think it's different for everyone. Um, for me, I knew before I knew, which sounds like a completely ridiculous, ridiculous thing to say. I think we all are born with a sense of self and what happens after that varies wildly. And how we understand ourselves is always going to be impacted by how the world around us sees ourselves and how we see the world around us. And as I grew up, I was brought up in a very gender non-conforming family. I didn't. I wasn't brought up with skirts or dresses or anything. I think I wore a dress to school once for picture day. And the story goes that I was rushed in first because they knew that I would go outside and get completely messed up immediately. And so they were like, oh my God, the hair's in like bunches, quick. Get them in, get them in now. Take the photo before it's ruined. And I think that really sums it up. You know, my I don't have the skills anymore, but when I was very small, my dad used to sit me down in the in the garage. And when I was sort of eight or nine years old, I could strip down and rebuild a motorbike carburetor in 15 minutes flat. That was my thing. We timed it. It was it was my superpower. And I always hung out with boys and I so but I didn't have that sort of idea of a forced upon gender. And so I didn't have that in a conflict so much because there weren't these expectations of the world around me. And there was sort of weird discomfort. But, you know, you're a child. Everything's growing. Everything's new to you. Everything's really big. Most things are still really big. I'm very short. And so I didn't really understand what was happening. And of course, you know, it's not expected. And I think growing up in the in the very early 2000s, the late 90s, had a big impact as well because that was a time when people really were having gender nonconformity for young people being slightly more of a thing. Tomboys were a big thing in that era. And so I think that kind of in a strange way helped and hindered in that I didn't notice anything was going on because the world was real chill. And then, I I mean, I always knew I was a bit weird, but my entire family's a bit weird. So uh, I didn't think anything of it. And then sort of puberty came along and there was this very distinct change in myself and I didn't know what that was I didn't know why that was I became very angry I became sort of withdrawn but I didn't know why I was angry I was just very angry at everything all of the time I turned quite a mean person which is something I'm trying to atone to to this day and I did things that I'm not very proud of because I was fighting with myself but I didn't know what I was fighting about and I think that's I think that's why being open about being trans is something I'm so adamant about because I didn't have any trans role models growing up. I didn't know it was a thing. So what was happening, unbeknownst to me, was that I was realising that who I was didn't fit with how the world saw me, but I didn't know that that was something that was possible or a thing or that even existed. And so I had this very strange sort of few years of self-hatred that I didn't know was self-hatred. It's very hard to know that you don't like yourself when you haven't ever liked yourself. And people, as I've transitioned, people, whenever I hit big milestones, people are like, oh, are you so happy? After I woke up um, from top surgery, people are like, are you so, you know, you must be so delighted. And I didn't feel happy. I just felt an absence of sad. And I realised for the first time, that's kind of how everyone goes through life. And it was very, very strange. And it's something that I, as I said, this sense of peace within myself. When you don't like yourself, it's very hard to like others very hard to be kind to others when you can't be kind to yourself. And so the way you interact with the world when you don't know who you are is very, very difficult, very, very strange. And so as I grew into an adult and and the differences between male and female became more prescribed, I became less nice and more angry and more confused. And the confusion when you're confused and you're sort of a teenager, what just happens, you just get even more angry. And this very strange sort of mess happened inside my brain. And you don't know it's happening because you don't know any different because it's inside your brain. And of course, everything in the world is filtered through your own perception. 
Um, and so it's, it's, it's very odd. And then I found a webcomic. I found a webcomic about a trans guy and it was the first trans representation I'd ever seen in my life. And I was like, oh, oh, this is a thing. And I remember reading it for months and months and months and just being like, oh, oh, okay, okay. So what's happening here is that I'm a dude. And the moment I realised that, I was like, of course I am. And there is, you have a few months of panic and particularly with the world being quite anti-trans and transphobic in this idea that no, 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 it's not you. It couldn't be you. And the idea that it's somehow shameful. And so I spent a good few months being like, no, I'm not. And everything inside of me was going, yes, yes, you are. And we're going, no, I'm really good at denial, um, which comes into my faith journey as well. And, and finally, I accepted it and embraced it. And again, I didn't feel great joy. I felt an absence of some of that heaviness, some of that weight, some of that darkness, some of that confusion and sadness and anger. And I, I think it's a very strange thing to try and explain to people. I remember a friend of mine always asked me, you know, before he was my friend, we met at a wedding. He comes over. We start talking. It comes up that I'm trans because um, he mentioned being gay. And I was like, oh, yeah. And he was like, look, I've never really thought about it. I don't, what, you know, what is it? And it was late at night and it would, you know, I'd eaten a lot of cheese. And so I described it for the first time as I was always a guy, even when I didn't know, even when nobody else knew. It's just who I happened to be. And for some reason that really connected with him. And he was like, oh, yeah. But I think it is quite a useful explanation. You know, how do you know who you are? You don't. You don't know how you know who you are. It's just something very, very deep. And trans people have to really analyse that and think about that. But at some base level, they've always known, even before they do the really long, complicated, theoretical thing that you yourself are struggling with trying to comprehend from the cisgender side. For a trans side, it's just as complicated and difficult to understand. Only you're trying to work out who you are, which makes it even more complicated because you're interrogating yourself as well as the world. Wow. Yeah, it sounds... (laughs) It sounds like quite a journey to navigate. So as as I was kind of preparing to talk to you and thinking about this, I've been trying to work out why why is it that individuals' journeys with these kind of things, your journey, many, many trans people's journeys, um, has become such a loaded and such a painful and such a freighted thing in public. And there's the other debates that are painful and loaded, you know, as a as a woman, sometimes the, the, the debates and the questions and the arguments about the role of women and mothering and career can feel painful to navigate and uh, and and race and i'm sure many other things you know in different seasons of history but right now from the the one that seems to be generating the most heat and the least like light is around gen- transgender pe- people and associated myriad seeming technical legal emotional issues and i'm you know, this podcast is not about, you know, I wouldn't want to debate it anyway, but it's not about that. It's about reflecting on the public conversation and how we do it better, how we engage across our differences better, how we treat each other with more empathy and more humanity, even if we might deeply, deeply disagree. So can you shed anything, any light on this for me? What, what's going on? Why is this so awful? <laughs> <laughs> I think we all want to know what's going on. I think part of it is the, particularly in England, is the framing. It's been framed as us versus them, but it's not your standard us versus them. Your standard us versus them, your standard binary opposition thing throughout history generally has been those in power versus those who aren't in power. And those with privilege versus those without privilege. So you have things like feminism, which comes up. Men categorically always been in power since the dawn of time. Maybe they need to share, right? Fine. 
easy argument. The men are going to get freaked out about it, but at the base core, everybody knows, all right, fair dues, enough's enough. Whereas in, particularly in England, the framing of trans issues has been an us versus them of people who have been a minority versus people who are also a minority. And so you have this tension and both sides feel like they have a huge amount to lose. You know, when someone in power ends up sharing that and creating a, it's not equal, let's be honest, but a modicum of equality with people who have historically been worse off than them, they know they're not really losing a lot. They'll shout about it, they'll complain about it, whatever, they're still, they haven't ever had to fight for it, so they're not really losing anything that feels hugely important. Whereas the way that trans, well, transphobia in the UK works is that it's been framed that trans people are infringing on the hard-won rights of women and um, lesbians and LGB people, which is nonsense. But if you catch someone and place that framing on them, someone who's fought for those rights and has struggled and been discriminated against because they are a member of those subcategories and you say this group of people is attacking and taking away from those rights that you fought for suddenly it becomes very loaded very dangerous because you're not losing a little bit of extra power you're losing rights that you personally or your family personally recently fought for that you know what it's like to not have and so it becomes very loaded and very dangerous and of course trans people are not taking away the rights of women they are not taking away the rights of lgb people it's a false dichotomy and a false argument that's been created by people who want to remove the rights of all minorities it feels like just this sort of need to keep power and create squabbling amongst us people who have been discriminated against. But what it does is it makes people scared, genuinely scared. And a lot of people are very angry at transphobes. You know, they're like, how dare they? You know, and yes, how dare they? But also, aside from a few of them, the sort of career transphobes who kind of, I get the feeling, know exactly what they're doing. A lot of them are just genuinely scared people who fought for rights and are worried that they're going to be taken away and are worried that they're going to be in danger. And I understand why it becomes so vicious and so loaded and so angry. That doesn't make it right. There is in no way an acceptable explanation for some of the things people have said and done to me and other trans people out there. But I kind of get where they're coming from in that if you have fought for women's rights, if you have fought for the rights of lesbians, gay people, bisexual people, I understand why the idea that these were taken away is is horrific and then taking them away is horrific. But that's not what's happening in all the noise and the chaos, the anger, the fear, the shouting, the newspaper articles, the television articles. We're losing the heart of the argument. And there's just a huge amount of arguing about things that aren't true, that aren't real. People say things like, oh, the change to the Gender Recognition Act will mean that women will be attacked by men pretending to be trans women in toilets. That's not going to happen for a start. Trans people have been able to use the toilets of their choice since forever, legally since the Equality Act 10 years ago almost. Secondly, it's just paperwork changing. I've got a gender recognition certificate. It changed my birth certificate. I got to shred my old one. It's all it is. It just means it's easier for me to get a job. That's literally the whole point of it. It's a paperwork issue. It's a checkbox issue. But it's become a fight for your rights, fight for your life issue, which isn't what it is. It's also confused with the fact that trans people have always been a group that has been ripe for attack. One of my favourite slash least favourite facts in the whole world 
And it makes a very good point is that transphobia has been around forever. And in England, particularly, it's had a huge, huge part to play. If you read books from sort of the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, there's a huge amount of literature that's deliberately homophobic and sexist. But entwined within homophobia and sexism is transphobic ideals. Transphobia is born out of a fear that people can break gender binary and sexuality. And the fact that we are breaking those sort of base ideas that society and power structures are based on. And a huge amount of fear of transphobia is entwined with sexism and homophobia. And this is why the argument frustrates me so much. People don't like trans women because they don't like the idea that men with massive quotation marks there, would give up power. And they don't like trans men because it's the idea that we are gaining power. And that is born out of sexism. And people don't like trans women and trans men because of this, particularly trans women, this whole uber-sexualized ideal because when people talk about gender, people get obsessed with genitals. And once you get into the genitals thing, it immediately becomes a sex thing. Once it becomes a sex thing, it becomes a homophobic and a biphobic thing. And so transphobia is built into those dichotomies. So if you go back to sort of the 1400s, 1500s, all these books that are built to maintain heterosexual male um, state, you know, patriarchal states, and they use sexism and homophobia, but what they're doing is combining them and creating an almost transphobic narrative. And we've held that in England forever. If you look at all of the past, most of the comedy, even sort of the 2010s, it's all ha ha, look at these men dressing up at women, look at these feminine men, look at these masculine women. And that's homophobic, that's got sexist undertones. But what it really is, at its core, is creating an idea of transphobia. Now, that isn't deliberately transphobic, those aren't transphobic tropes. But when you pull them together like that, and you look at them through a lens of a world in which trans people are coming out to the fore, you notice the transphobia inherent. And what's happened is, in English society, is trans people have always been laughed at we've always been the butt of jokes if you so we go back to my favorite least favorite fact which is that the word bad is an english word the word bad it's a negative thing but if you go back it comes from the old not the middle english but the old english word which i can't pronounce which is b a with a weird line on it a couple of d's it's like badel or something um and what that means is a feminine man and so transphobia is so baked into English society. Not only is it in our literature and our art and every comedy show ever, I spend my whole life being like, it's only got one transphobic episode. It's okay. We can watch it. But it's in our language. It's in our words so far back that the word bad, it's not like, oh, sinister. Yes, it's left. You know, we kind of know that. But something as basic as the word bad is a feminine man, which is, wow. if we go all the way back, base of a trans woman. Trans people have been around forever and we've been disliked forever because we attack power structures by just the fact that we exist. Yeah, that gives me even more to think about. So Jay, I first came across you because, although I realised I'd been following you on Twitter because of your history threads, because you were featured in Queer Prophets, Ruth Hunt's book, uh, from a range of LGBT voices talking about religion. And I sort of want you to just tell the story <laughs> that you wrote in your essay, um, but that would probably be a bit long. I would urge um, the listeners to go and read it. It's available on Jay's website as well as in the book. But you, it, from what you said about your childhood, it didn't sound like there was any religion in the air when you were growing up. Is that right? Um, okay, so you need to understand that not only was there no religion in the air, it was like anti-religion. My uncle did some work at a, a nunnery. He's like a handyman. And so all of our kitchen chairs were stolen from nuns. We stole from nuns, okay? Like, we were bad. There is a crucifix on the wall in our kitchen, not because anybody in this house believed in Jesus at that point, but because it looked a little bit like my dad, who has sort of like the goatee and the cheekbones and the long hair. Um, and so he stole a crucifix from a nunnery because it looked a little bit like, a little bit like my dad. Um, there was just sort of a, let's take the mick out of religion thing happening. 
So you just didn't have any of that kind of cultural Christian memory in you at all. And but you fell in love with cathedrals. It's not your classic conversion story, I have to say. It wasn't, you know, someone took you along to an alpha course. You just started loving beautiful architecture. Is that right? Oh, I just love an old building and and I love history and cathedrals are the best buildings, right? If you love old buildings and you love architecture, cathedrals are the best buildings because they were built for God. So they were built in the best way with the best stuff. They were like the high-tech, top-notch buildings of their time, right? All the money. You're going to spend a load of money on a castle. Yeah, it's got to like keep people out and all of this. Cathedrals, they were just built to be pretty and be the best that we could give, right? So cathedrals are the best buildings. I love cathedrals because of the people and the architecture at the, at the beginning. Um, and then and then things happened. But I've just always loved cathedrals. They're always so imposing and so beautiful. And I love architecture so me, and I love history. Tell me what happened because your essay made me cry because Sorry. I had a... No, in a good way, because I had a sort of faint echo when I became a Christian in that I, I wasn't really at all. And then I prayed... And then I had a very powerful ecstatic experience. I did a kind of like, all right, then go on. If, you, if, you, if you're real, show me. What happened? What were you feeling? This stuff is so hard to talk about. And that's why it's so lovely to see it written about beautifully. What happened that made you think something's going on here that's not just about the fact that I love this architecture? I'd always love cathedrals. I always go to old places, but I'd always been fascinated with historical sites. And I'd written an essay beforehand about the thing that I like to call the weight. And my favourite place for feeling the weight is in the overflow of the Roman baths in Bath. It's sort of this side corner that everyone ignores and it's ugly and it's orange and it's just a hole in the wall with water coming out of it. And oh my God, the feelings. And you just feel the weight of humanity and everyone who's ever been and ever will be. It's something that I really appreciate. And I'd, I'd felt that in a lot of historical sites, castles, you know, that kind of thing. So I was feeling feelings in cathedrals and a friend of mine, I was in Norwich and he was like, come see Norwich Cathedral. And I was like, yes, cathedral. So we went in, gorgeous, Norman, excellent triforium. Love me a good triforium. We go in, it's got these cool little side chapels. I'm loving it. He's like, do you want to do even song? I'm like, mm, yeah, cool. I do like classical music. I'm a sad old man in my soul. Let's do it. The choir sang, I felt emotions that were not about the age of the cathedral. And I was like, this is fine. Don't confront it. Move on this is fine. And then I spent ages thinking about it because of course you do. And then I, a few weeks later, I was in Durham and I was like, Durham Cathedral, best cathedral, got to go visit Durham. And all my mates in Durham know that Durham Cathedral is the love of my life. Not even exaggerating. And one of them was like, do you want to go to Evensong? He used to be Catholic. So he like was into the whole religious thing. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. So we went and the, and the organist had the night off or the choir had the night off or something. Um, and I think they were just doing evening prayer. And I sat there and I was like, right, I'm feeling feelings again. And because the choir hadn't been on that night, we decided we'd do it again and we'd do actual evensong. So a couple of nights later, we went again. I sat in the cathedral again in exactly the same seat. And I was like, right, just like the old buildings, just the architecture. I'm not interested in a divine revelation. And I was sitting there and the building was very pretty and the choir was singing. And I was like, oh, no, I'm feeling the feelings. And there was this like the pause bit where you do the prayers, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, OK. And I, have, and I assume this is what praying is. Didn't know that at the time, but I was like, all right, you bitch, you, you need to stop doing this. We need to stop doing this. I'm, I'm a poet. I feel feelings all of all of the time. What you need to do is either do a thing or fuck off, <laughs> which I regretted immediately about four hours later. So I told God. It's all right. It, the Psalms are pretty um, fruity in their language. I, I gather yeah. in the original, in the way they address God. 
I'm a big fan of the Psalms and also the whole Jewish tradition of just being prepared to fight God about everything. I'm a huge fan of threatening God. Um, so I was like, "Eat you bitch, do a thing. <laughs> and then it finished and we went for a nice walk and dinner and it was lovely. So me and my friend went on a walk and Durham has, if you've ever been to Durham, you'll know that it's gorgeous. And um, if you haven't, the sort of centre of Durham, there's a, there's a river that does a full, almost 180. And so the cathedral is on top of this big cliff next to a castle because, you know, why not? Right in the bend of this river and stands on this big precipice and it's gorgeous and it, it overlooks the whole thing. And of course, there's a number of bridges over the river. And along the side of the river, there are a load of, there's an unlit path on either side of the river, unlit, unpaved. It's very nice. Was, however, November. So not the time to be wandering around a dark, dimly lit path. I was with a guy. He was straight. He was white. He was six foot three. We were going to be safe. And this crowd of people were walking in the opposite direction. And I got up to check the exposure. And this one guy sort of peeled off from the group. And I thought he was taking a risky selfie. Why not? It's a dark night, but I'm taking weird pictures with my camera. Feel free, mate. And then he climbed onto the onto the edge of the bridge, onto the precipice of the bridge. And I remember turning to my mate and I was like, what the fuck is he doing? And my mate realised what the fuck he was doing long before I did and ran over and tried to talk this guy down off this bridge. And the river was really, really fast. You couldn't hear a word either of them were saying because of the roar of the river running underneath. And there's a weir sort of just beyond that, which was clogged up with loads of branches and stuff because, of course, it had been flooded. And the river was very dangerous. And the guy just jumped. You watched him just drop into the water and everyone just... It was just this moment of stillness before everyone jumped into action. And the way the river curves means that what happened shouldn't have happened. But he washed up on the West Bank, which is not how the river was flowing at all. It's not how the river was flowing. That's not how the river works. And he was washed up on the bank at the foot of a crowd of people who were also walking along the unlit muddy path in the middle of December at night, which doesn't happen. Nobody walks on those paths. That's it's not how it works. And he was washed up right at their feet. And the police came and they hauled him off and he was alive and they took his stuff. And I was just standing there and the cathedral was right behind me. And I was like, mm-hmm. do a thing or fuck off. And we were supposed to be meeting my friend. So I phoned him and he was like, oh, my God, where are you? I'll come get you. And right in my heart, all I could think was go to the cathedral, go to the cathedral, go to the cathedral. You need to go to the cathedral. I ended up lying on my friend's floor because I do love crashing on a floor. And all that was going around in my head was go to the cathedral, talk to a priest, go to a cathedral, talk to the priest, go to the cathedral, talk to a priest, go to the cathedral, talk to a priest. And it was very, very weird. And I was like, maybe, maybe I'll do that. And then the next day I went to the cathedral and I sat at the East End, sort of on the opposite side of the wall from where I'd ended up meeting my friend. This is my favourite part of the cathedral. And I sat there. I just had a long think. Guess I was praying. Don't really know. Staring at the Jesus in the stained glass that's right at that end of the cathedral. And I just had a lot of feelings and a lot of, okay, that happened. And I went to the crossing and I was like, hi, can I talk to a priest? And they were like, ah, there are no priests available. And I was like, I watched a man jump off the bridge behind you last night. Can I talk to a priest? And they were like, excuses while we get you a priest. And we just had this conversation about what happened. And I didn't mention God. I didn't mention, I was just like, look, it happened. I am in a city I do not live in. And it happened just after you sang things to God. So it's on you. Ah. Um, and then just kept thinking about Jesus, didn't I? And I was like, oh, no. And I'd, I'd like Google the Church of England website in incognito mode like on my phone and on my laptop. Like, you can't, I can't admit this to myself. No, 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 no. It's like, 
people would come in, I'd slam my laptop shut like it was porn or something, but it wasn't. It was like the Bible. It was very weird. Very normal behaviour. And after a few weeks of that, I phoned my friend and her her wife is a priest and I phoned her up and I was like, what the fuck do I do? I think Jesus is coming for me. Like, what do I do? What do I do about this? And she was like, okay, breathe. Let's get advice from the priest. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. And it all sort of spiralled. It all sort of spiralled from there. Wow. I love it. I love, yeah, I love that sense of long-term denial. The, the stigma is what it'd be, it'd be better to be looking at porn than looking at the Church of England website. Tell me what, how does it feel now as someone who is LGBT and not from a religious background at all to have come out essentially in this book as someone who is now a Christian? Are you comfortable with that as a label? I mean, this this is very weird. I did an interview a few weeks ago. They were like, oh, say, I'm Jay and I'm a Christian. I was like, I don't know if I can do that. And I don't know why. And they asked me why. And I was like, I've never thought about it before. Please do not put this pressure on me. So I don't know yet. That's fine. Definitely a fan of Jesus. I think we'll right. stick with that. Great. Oh, yeah. Nice dude. What, what? Another thing that you say in the essay is worrying about how your friends and family who aren't religious at all, and some of them have some kind of standard baggage and some of them have some very justified baggage about religion, how they might see you. How have you found talking to people about it? Do they feel like you've changed tribes or are they worried that you've been brainwashed or what are the kind of reactions to it? Among my friends, they're great. They're really chill. They're very funny because they keep trying to like not be blasphemous. And I'm like, that's literally all that I do. One of them was like, oh my gosh. And I was like, really? And they were like, I just didn't want it. And I was like, no, I've said 10 worse things in the past 40 minutes. Okay, we're all good. My family, I just haven't brought it up. I don't think they've noticed. We'll just carry on until they find out. I mean, it's very important to me, but I don't think it's, it doesn't really matter in, in a sense for them. We'll find out. We'll probably get into an argument. It'll be fine. But, you know, um, I've got a number of friends who I am not looking forward to telling because they have a lot of a lot of very big baggage. Um, but I'm just kind of I'm not hiding it. I'm just not bringing it up. And go, I'm not going to run over to them and go, so I found Jesus. And this is what I discovered. Nah, I'm just going to carry on. And occasionally they're going to be like, did you? And I was like, yeah. And either they're going to be really angry or they're not. But we'll find out. I think it's very interesting. I, I am extremely online. People have a lot of like weird relationship with that online. Particularly as a lot of people follow me because because I'm trans. And so people have this very strange relationship with that concept. And I have a very strange relationship with with Christianity and LGBT issues in that because I was so removed from it when I was younger and I came to it in such a unique way, it's it's very, very different for me. So things like the people who've who've gone to church with their family or whatever and they've had that sort of negative experience. I never had that. The first priests I ever met, I met all of them at a gay wedding. It's the first time I ever spoke to a priest was at a gay well, was at a gay wedding. You know, um the only priest that I, I I'm sort of friends with, like the people who introduced me and answered all of my questions when all of this was happening were gay priests. They're the best kind, obviously. And so I have this very strange relationship with it in that I've never had it be not affirming. And I think it's really sad that people don't get to have that because what it's given me is so beautiful. Um, a lot of people online sort of ask me, you know, doesn't it conflict? Doesn't it cause problems? Doesn't finding faith as a trans person create a sort of inherent conflict? And it actually makes everything nicer, makes everything easier. It makes everything so much more peaceful. And I think it's something people lose. People are like, how, how does that work? 
and sort of being trans in the world and everyone's like why are you like this who are you what's happening and the fact is people don't really know the answers to those questions people don't know why people are trans people don't really know how to explain this and it's part of the reason people get so angry because it's something that is sort of very hard to to explain because for trans people our experience of the world has been so different for everybody else from birth that it's very hard to explain what's happening and what it means and what's going on for us and so you're always filled with this strange feeling of is this right is this wrong what is happening who am i and why and to find faith in the way that i did free from free from anger or persecution or negativity towards lgbt people means that what i found was an explanation of my own existence and people find that very strange to understand but being trans and finding faith in an affirming way means that i found an understanding of who i am i'm am trans because god made me this way i am trans because god ordained for me to live this life i am merely a facet of the infinite variety of creation and there is purpose to my existence in a way that i hadn't really experienced before and a lot of people online love to use this whole in psalm 139 the fearfully and wonderfully made line to try and stop people from transitioning when in fact trans people are fearfully and wonderfully made just as we are it's my favorite line it's the most affirming one that there is god knew us before we were born and knew what would happen to us and what we would do before we did god knew i was trans before i knew i was trans god made me exactly as i am because that's what i was supposed to be i was put on this earth to do something we cannot know what it is yet but me being trans is me fulfilling what god wanted for me and what god ordained for me people are like oh transition is to go against god you can be trans but just don't transition is is a big idea within a lot of sort of transphobic religious circles when in fact to be trans and to transition is to fulfill god's plan for us and to live honestly as an openly as transgender people and to live the best lives we can is to fulfill God's plan for us and to honor him as best we can. And I feel like it's something that's completely lost in almost in translation. Being trans isn't to conflict with God, it's to to accept what was given to us. We 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 are given free will to choose what we do, not what we are. And we are LGBT people. And what we choose and choosing to hate LGBT people, that is a choice of in what we do. To be LGBT is not a choice. It is simply who we are. And I think it's something that people miss. Okay, I'm going to finish with the question that I, I ask most people, which is about what they've learned about engaging across difference or engaging with people who disagree with them. What have they learned about how to do that better, how to do that in ways that um, are more human, um, more loving, more empathetic. And so either as a trans person talking um, to those who might have a different conception of gender or, and sex to you or as a someone who's now a fan of Jesus talking to people who aren't a fan of Jesus, is there anything that you've learned that really helps? I think I think it's very strange to just be so angry at other people's existence. Part of me always wonders, you know, why does it matter to you how I live my life and how other people live their lives? Um, how does it impact upon you? And I think part of what helps, I used to get so angry and I, I try to not be angry. It's one of my great, my greatest struggles, my greatest character flaws, is that I, I have historically been very quick to anger. And I think it's very important to look at people who dislike you, people who hate you even, with compassion. To look at them and go, you feel this way because you are scared. You feel this way because you are scared of something. 
that I represent or that what I do represents. And fear is not a good thing. I spent years living in fear of who I am and who I could be and fear of what that could mean. And so to have compassion for people who dislike you is something that's so lacking from the conversation. And of course we can feel angry and upset. And of course the things that these people do are inherently wrong and unacceptable and should not be happening. But I think simply being angry in return doesn't get us anywhere. We have to see where they're coming from, have compassion for where they're coming from and help guide them to a better conclusion. Jaheem, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.